Before the episode, I want to acknowledge three sponsors of Think Like an Owner. The first is Live Oak Bank. Live Oak Bank is a seasoned SBA lender focused on search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire small companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Live Oak Bank directly to start a conversation at liveoakbank.com slash contact us. The second is Hood & Strong LLP. Hood & Strong is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. The third is Barrel. Barrel is a digital marketing agency that helps companies create revenue-generating websites, emails, and marketing campaigns. Clients include L'Oreal, Scott's miracle Grow, Berries, and Smarty Pants Vitamins. Barrel has extensive experience working with venture capital and private equity firms to help audit, optimize, and grow their portfolio brands. To learn more about Barrel, visit barrelny.com slash alex or email newbiz, N-E-W-B-I-Z at barrelny.com and mention Think Like an Owner podcast. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guest is Brian Vander Hayden, who ran his search from Chicago starting in 2015 and two years later in 2017 acquired a company called Richmond Alarm Company in Richmond, Virginia. Richmond Alarm was founded 73 years ago, and Brian acquired the business from the founder's two sons who had taken over the business from the father. During the episode, we talk about Richmond Alarm's history and their in-office museum of 73 years of security technology, how he's developed his team over time, the dynamics of the security industry, and why he admires Chick-fil-A. Enjoy the episode. Thank you for joining us. This is awesome. I listened to your interview with the Authentic Leadership Podcast and the Polsky Center, which I'll link to below. And they have some good background on a little bit on your search and how you've progressed through COVID and whatnot. So we'll link to those and people can listen to those. And I recommend listening to them first. But would you give us the quick two to three minute background of your past career and then your time thinking about searching and then your search and then finding Richmond Alarm? Thanks for having me. I spent about 10 years at a large medical device and biotech company in a variety of roles. So I started out in a financial role and then worked my way into product development and then into ultimately to M&A. And 
was continuing to search for what my passion was or what I really wanted to do with my career. At that point in time, just sort of serendipitously was attending University of Chicago, met somebody who had formed a search fund. That was the first I had heard of it. In fact, it was pitched as something slightly different. And really, he introduced me to some investors. One thing led to another. I ultimately took the leap because I felt that I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. At that stage in my life, it was not starting a business from scratch. It was really finding a great business backed by really solid investors to take the business to the next level. Again, I was really just fortunate, I guess, to find that opportunity at that point in my life. Ended up raising the search fund in middle of 2015. Searched until we acquired Richmond Alarm Company in mid-2017. And we've been running the company for just over three years now. Excellent. And talk a little bit more about the company Richmond Alarm. So it's been around over 70 years. Has it been through a few family generations then? It has, yeah. So it was started by a gentleman who ended up passing the business off to his two sons. They ran the business for the better part of 40 plus years. We acquired the business again in 2017. At that time, the business was exactly 70 years old. We acquired it from those two brothers that were running the business. And there was a third generation in the business as well. They've been awesome to partner up with. Again, they bring a ton of expertise. Somebody who's my age has 20 years of experience, not only in this industry, but with this company. So that's been really cool to partner with the family, so to speak. With going from the first generation to the second generation, what did the two sons do to kind of make their mark on the business and improve from the first generation? And then what have you seen as your mark on the company so far? It's tough to say going back. I want to say when the brothers took over the business from their dad, that the company had about five employees. I could be wrong on that, but plus minus, it's directionally correct. They just built a really solid customer service business over a period of 40 years based on doing things the right way, taking care of customers, and then having technical expertise or knowledge of what they were doing. I mean, I guess all that's to say, I, I can't speak to the first generation of it, but the second generation, they just built a business the right way in the way that any founder should want to build it. I guess as we look to the sort of third phase of that, so when I came into the business, what we've done is we've done a variety of things, not the least of which is we've applied this traction or EOS process to the business, brought on a CFO. We've invested heavily in the systems and in training. I think we took what was sort of this, I'll call it this raw, really strong customer service business and try to apply different investments to it to take it to the next level. That's it. I mean, there was a reason we bought into a good business because we didn't want to have to reinvent the wheel, so to speak. I guess as I, you know, a few years in, as I look back, those are probably the major drivers of the growth and development of this now 73-year-old business. Yeah, so in 70 years, 73 years, I imagine there's been a ton of technological change for alarms and security. So what technology existed 70 years ago that the company first started using? And then with each leap, how did the company adjust to it? And then what are you seeing today as your next leap that you have to make? 
it's really crazy. We have a, I'll call it a museum in the front of our facility. And so you walk into, you see the old equipment that was installed, foil wrapping that would go around the windows. They used to have a, a loop that would start at one end of the alarm, go throughout any facility and basically be an electrical circuit that goes through the entire building. And if that electrical circuit was broken, that would trigger the alarm. And back in the day, they would have a, a bell or some type of siren or whatever it was on the outside of a building, which would alert the police force and neighbors that there was a, an alarm issue at a facility. That was back in the day. So nowadays, there's still audible alarms. Those are obviously very impactful for people that are trying to break into a facility. But now that signal transmits right to our 24-7 dispatch center. We can get on the phone with the owners of the property to verify if there was an issue. We can get on the phone with fire, police, and dispatch authorities as necessary when the owners aren't there to take action. So that's been sort of the historical development, which brings us to what we see nowadays, very, very large sales numbers around access control People want these access control key cards to enter and exit buildings. They don't want to deal with locks anymore. Alongside that, we see a lot of camera sales. So it's not just security and fire monitoring, but people want to be able to watch who's on their property, have a recording of that, transmit that to the cloud, and then be able to act on it. So that's sort of the most recent transition. And then where it goes from here, I think it's just it's going to be very interesting. In the residential market, there's been a lot of do-it-yourself innovation. So you've heard of Simply Safe and Front Point and all these other companies that are just drop shipping equipment to a home, then they're installing it. Nest and, and Ring are others. You see proliferation of that on the residential side, not so much on the commercial side. Commercial, the cutting edge or the wave, next wave of innovation is more around smart access control tied into a camera system, facial recognition, AI recognition to determine who's on the property, should they be on the property, and if not, take some form of action, whether that's notification of owners of the property or authorities as needed. In our previous call, you mentioned cybersecurity a little bit. What innovations do you see as becoming the base level of service that's expected versus things that are becoming available now, but are going to be more optional. They might like it or they might not, might choose to go with it or not. But what do you see as the two types of technology in each category? Yeah, I think it's more as we look at security itself as more security as a service. So there are things right now that people, guard tours were taking place at parking facilities and other buildings, and those can be replaced by video capabilities and, and people watching remotely. As it pertains to cybersecurity, certainly a glaring need for that. I think whether we're the best provider of that or someone else is probably remains to be seen. A lot of that will depend on what type of IT knowledge is required to fulfill that service and then also what type of equipment is required. And so we've sort of built our business based on providing great equipment, but really it's a service business. And so it's that high-end customer touch and being able to install it the right way, know exactly what's wrong when something does break versus at least the outsourced IT folks that we talk to, they can get into a computer system, diagnose an issue. They set up 
firewalls and protocols to prevent threats from happening. So it's slightly different. And so I guess it, it remains to be seen whether we're the best providers of that or not, or, or whether we invest in that space, acquire into it. We'll see. When you're looking at competing with Simply Safe and these other home security businesses, obviously with companies that are that big and with that scale, there's going to be things that they're going to do really well. And there's going to be things that you could probably do better than they could. So where do you see as like the opportunities for Richmond Alarm to compete effectively? So within which services they offer, like with the direct to consumer alarms and the cameras, like maybe they do that better. And so maybe you don't invest as much in that, but with in-person com- patrols and more elaborate systems, you're obviously going to be better than them at that. So you have that advantage. So what kind of advantages do you see over someone like Simply Safe, where even though the company is huge, you're still going to be better at them at certain services. I think where we win all day against that type of service is when somebody appreciates an expert doing the work for them. I equate this to there's growth, let's take landscape management as an example, and this is even in the residential market. There's been very significant growth in in people that just say, I don't want to mow the grass anymore. I want someone to do it for me. Those people are totally capable of mowing the grass. (laughs) If they probably broke down the cost per hour, it's still probably worth it for them to mow the grass. They just don't want to mow the grass. So that's why you see the growth in that market in particular. And I think the same exists on alarms too, although there's another component to it. So We have all those same elements, except there's just a certain demographic, let's call it, although it's wide ranging across multiple demographics, a certain mentality that people don't want to do that work. They don't want to install an alarm system in their own house for fear that they might be doing it incorrectly. It might not communicate properly to the central station in case something happens. That's where we really come in. Definitely on those higher end systems. There's no question that that's really difficult to have <laughs> simply safe, ship out all of those components, do it right, set it up properly. Okay, that just, I haven't heard of that working yet. But even on the smaller scale, so you're looking at like two doors, a few motion detectors in the house, very simplified system, I'll call it, or a very basic system. Again, there's a certain group, a certain population that wants to install it themselves, sort of tech advanced. The argument back in the day was millennials would want to have a DIY system because they would want to install it themselves. Well, I know plenty of millennials that say, I don't want anything to do with it. Just install it for me. And so I don't think it's necessarily generational as it is more just personal preference. But anybody that wants that high touch service with guys that our average service technician has 23 years of experience. They know exactly what they're doing. They've watched the technology change over time. I think that's really where we win. Yeah, especially with the desire to have somebody present who can come to your home or your office and install it for you who's an expert. Like having that hands-on person is really important. And throughout the pandemic, and you talked about this on the Polsky Center podcast, but how you've had to adapt each of your services that are used to be in person that now have to be digital. So I'd love for you to provide a little more information about how that's gone and then how many of those services have been able to transition to digital smoothly and how have you maintained culture through all this too? Yeah, I think we're able to avoid some service calls just based on diagnosing issues. We always were able to diagnose the issues before we went out to the house. I think nowadays people are asking if we can solve it without coming out to their house. And so that's 
been good. We've we've probably saved some people some money on that regard, so that's always a plus. But I will say that that was let's call it April, May, maybe even some June time frame of 2020 where that happened. Now people just want someone to come visit. Like you said, when the alarm is beeping, <laughs> you just want a professional that knows exactly what key codes to punch in and how to manipulate the system to get it to stop and work properly. And so one thing we've noticed is, yeah, there's still some people that will take these remote phone calls and and they do want that assistance if they're looking to save some money and that's okay. But for the most part, those have died down and people just want us in their home. They want to know that we're there helping them with their technology. So it's actually been really uh, fulfilling on that regard. In terms of how we've maintained culture through COVID, it's tough. I think it's tough in that there's a lot of negativity out in the world right now for a variety of reasons. And what we try to do is focus back on what we're doing with the customers. We had a great story the other day. We had a dispatch on a fire alarm that we called Real Fire critique in the industry is there's some false alarms, but real fire. The person was out for a walk and we ended up effectively, we dispatched the fire department and they were out there within minutes. They contained the fire. There ended up being two disabled people in the home at the time, likely saved their lives. It all comes back to that. And so the more that we've been able to focus on the benefit that we're providing to the customers despite all the negativity that's taking place in the world, that's what our employees really resonate with. And and frankly, that's why they're here to begin with anyway. It's why they do what they do. That's how we're trying to maintain the culture. We had employee, all employee meetings every quarter. We haven't had a desire to do those because we don't want to, if anybody has the virus, we don't want to infect the entire population. So we've held off on those, but we've been able to do things, what we called one of them, uh, Tailgate Tuesday, where all the technicians came in, We had lunch outside, packaged lunch, so everything was packaged. We didn't touch anything. It was all COVID-friendly, so to speak. We have a giant parking lot. So we just all got out in the parking lot and got to shoot the breeze a little bit, have some lunch. And it was just a good, heartwarming experience relative to what's taking place in the world. So honestly, if there's any ideas, we're open to them. But we've just tried to keep it loose and light. Yeah, it sounds like you've developed quite the culture. And it sounds like people trust you, too. And I wonder how long did it take when you first bought the business to get that trust and also in an industry that has some technical aspect to it or a pretty major technical aspect, how long did it take you to mesh with the team? I guess I sort of admitted defeat up front on the technical aspects and just said, I'm never going to get up to where you guys are technically. And I had comfort in the fact, and it probably provided them comfort too, to say, look, there's things that I'm going to focus on in running the business, which is let's provide the capital. Let's put some things in place to make sure we're measuring the right things for the customers. Let's invest in the right areas. Let's hire and bring on new, really strong talent. Those are things that I can focus on if I'm not having to focus on technical elements of the business. So there was sort of this harmony right off the bat where it was very transparent and I don't want to say you sort of fall on the sword about it. I know what I know and and I know strengths and weaknesses. And so let's just kind of leave it at that. And I think people resonated with that. I think they respected that I wasn't coming in trying to act like I can learn as much as they know. So that was good. 
in terms of how you build that trust, I don't know that I have a silver bullet for it. I've always just tried to be really transparent and honest with the employees at all points in time. I remember this is going back about a year, just over a year. We had a town hall meeting and I solicited questions up front. People gave me all sorts of things. Why was this person let go? Are you going to sell the company? What do you really think about the way our company performs? And I knew in asking for open questions that I wouldn't be able to dodge anything. And that's kind of why I did it, because I think the transparency goes a long way to building trust. The more you can be real in front of the people and answer their question without a political roundabout answer, that you can build trust that way. So that's what we've tried to do. I think it's worked out. I thoroughly enjoy working with the team here, and I think they enjoy working with me as well. We have a lot of fun. But you know, those are just some of the things that we've tried to do that, that I think have worked. And you said the two brothers, at least one of the brothers, still has a role in the business. What was their plan after closing with the business? One of the brothers wanted to retire. That was sort of why I was called in. He wanted to retire. And the other brother was, I guess I'll call it indifferent to whether he was going to move on or not. But really, he wanted to stay in the business. He loved the business and hadn't yet thought through what retirement looked like. I guess I'll I'll probably put it that way. Ultimately, that's what happened. The one brother that wanted to retire ended up retiring. The other brother stayed in the business. He still helps us out in an IT capacity. He started the monitoring center probably 30 to 40 years ago. So you can call him the founder of that business unit that we have. And that's what he's very closely involved with today. So I think it's really rewarding for him. He doesn't have to worry about all the things that business owners have to worry about, cash, employee turnover, holding people accountable. He just gets to do what he loves, which is the technical aspects of the business. So it's been really rewarding to see that one brother wanted to retire and got to, and the other brother gets to focus on the things that make him happy and I'll deal with the other headaches. (laughs) So were they co-CEOs in capacity or... Was the brother who's currently in the IT role, was he the CEO and he just didn't want to do it anymore? His official title was the president, effectively, yep, president CEO. And then the other brother, I can't remember exactly what the title was, but he effectively ran the operations group. So they had sort of divided the business. You could call it co-CEOs. I mean, they didn't make any material decisions for the business without consulting one another and agreeing to it. So it's the right way to do it. But I would say one of the brothers was probably more heavily involved in the accounting sales element of it. And the other one was more involved in the operational installation and service aspects. Gotcha. And how have you made, as you've gotten more familiar with the team and the company and folks come and go, how have you developed your team over time? It's been a great growing process. So when we first came on board, the folks that were here were great for what we needed at that point in time, great at executing the certain processes that we had in place. Well, since then, we've grown the business about 70% plus minus. And so there are a ton of different challenges that one faces when that happens. Now, I mentioned before that we put the traction or EOS process in place, which has really helped us narrow down what our core values were and also how we hold employees accountable. So it's well known, but the OS process has a a framework where you, you grade employees out based on the core values, plus do they get the job? Do they understand it? Do they want the job? 
deep down inside, is that what they want to do? And then do they have the capability to do the job? And that's basically a manager assessment of whether they've got the the intellect and the other horsepower to do the job. So we just try to be really transparent with every employee, particularly the managers, as we transition from where we were to growing however much we have, 70%. In terms of do they still understand what the needs of the job are? Do they want what that role is? Do they want to take on management responsibility for more people or different processes or whatever it might be? And then ultimately, do they have the capability to do it? And that sort of manifests itself in time. And so some have stepped up and that's been great. And some have moved on and some we've repurposed. It's really been a combination of all three of those things. The beauty of it was we bought a business with really good people. And so we didn't have any of those, really any of those issues. It was just a matter of whether we're going to repurpose somebody or whether they wanted something different. I guess with that EOS process, we just had a ton of conviction behind what the business needed and then the compassion and candor to realize what the employee also wanted. And and if that worked out great, and if it didn't work out, we've, we've helped them somewhere else. So it's been a heck of a growing process, though, to get to that stage. And so ultimately, we've, I don't know what the stats are, but we have very low employee turnover, but the management team, we, we've had to bring on some additional resources, at least in their current roles, and then we've repurposed others. It's been great. Did your work experience prior to your MBA and searching, did it help prepare you for being the CEO? Was there a lot that you had to just learn as you went? I would say more you have to learn as you go. <laughs> the prior work experience helps. At Abbott in particular, I got to see how really good managers managed. That certainly helped. They also promoted me to management positions fairly early on. So I got experience managing people, holding people accountable, driving to performance evaluation processes, things like that. That all helped. But in terms of one of the things that you don't deal with at a large company, only do really at smaller companies or as the owner, is cash management. I mean, all of that was basically learn on the fly and there's nothing really that complicated about it. Just make sure you make more than you spend. But there was other things in terms of how you address certain employees. I wouldn't say that it was necessarily the prior career that developed those skill sets. That was just more, probably more how you were raised than anything that helps address that. But again, treat people with respect. Transparency wins the day. Those are all the things that you sort of have to master in spades on the fly and stay a step ahead of the learning curve, so to speak. I don't know that there's really anything that can prepare you for it. And I'm sure you talk to founders all the time, and particularly people that have even started a company from scratch, and I would bet they'd say the same thing. There's just nothing that can prepare you for for that trial by fire. Are there any books that you found helpful in some capacity in being a manager? Yeah, there's a few. One of the books that that I think is pretty interesting was called The Art of Action. The book studies military leadership and how they delegate their desires. So the military leader that says, at the end of the day, we need to take that hill. But the military leader can't say, at 12.02, do this. And oh, by the way, if this thing happens, turn right and command your troops differently. It's impossible to lay out all the possible scenarios that could potentially come up. But at the end of the day, you need to take the hill. That's what the organization needs to do. And so the book talks about how you delegate authority, paint the vision, 
and try to get people to accomplishing ultimately what that goal is, taking that hill, growing the revenue, launching a product, whatever it might be. So I thought that was good. I think traction was really good for us because we needed that operating system. So that was really helpful for me. I did not have my team read that. We just implemented the EOS process, but it was good for me to get to understand exactly what operating system we were going to be implementing. That was helpful. General book about team and leadership and trying to pull together is the book, The Boys in the Boat. That one is an awesome one. I think they're coming out with a movie of it at some point in time. But that's about a rowing team that ultimately went to the Olympics and beat, frankly, better athletes, but they were a better team. And so it's all about how the priority should be on a great team versus a bunch of individual athletes. So I've shared that with the team here. And then right now I'm deep into a a book called Deep Work, which is basically how do you remove distraction and focus on priorities? So that's sort of another on this growth curve of growing a business. That's just where our business is at and where a lot of our management team and leaders are at is how do we remove distraction to prioritize and focus on what the business actually needs? Yeah. And looking at the next hills that Richmond needs to take on and, and get to, do you think you can get to most of those through natural organic growth and adding products all internally? Or do you think there's some that might need an acquisition to get to? There is. There's plenty of runway organically. So to answer the question, I, I think we can get there organically. Our day-to-day focus is that. So how are we improving the sales process? How are we communicating more effectively what the customer wants to the installation team? How are we installing with with proper notification to the customers and on time and all that good stuff, delivering that great experience. So that's the organic engine that we've got and are trying to continue to cultivate. I think there's a ton of opportunity from an acquisition standpoint, though. There are a bunch of, this industry is extremely fragmented. ADT is the largest, is the market share leader with approximately 25% market share. There are a bunch of other providers. Last I heard, I want to say there was about 13,000 providers of security, but I wouldn't doubt if it was more than that. So we've acquired a couple. We have others that are on our radar. We'd love to acquire those businesses, really good, solid businesses built the right way, just like Richmond Alarm was. I think there's opportunities there. Now that's all staying within in the operation of what we currently do, which is security, fire access control, and, and video. That would not be any product expansion. If we wanted to expand products, we mentioned cyber earlier, I think probably low likelihood of that, but you never know. If we wanted to expand into something like that, we would almost have to acquire. I think hiring somebody on board to help build that business would probably just take too long, especially with sort of my go, go, go mentality. So we we would have to acquire a business to leapfrog into that product line. And so with the companies you've acquired, what made them suitable acquisitions for you? So were you buying contracts or their employees you brought on? What made them good targets for your acquisition? Their customer base was probably priority number one. Did they bring their customers in the right way? So again, in this industry, there are people that will go knock on doors, sort of intimidate people into a sale. Well, those books of businesses, so to speak, have extremely high attrition rates. So the good thing is if if the customer base has been there for any period of time, let's call it over five years, you can study attrition rates to understand just how healthy that book of business is. So that was probably priority 
one, I would say priority one B was who the employees are that we were going to bring on board. We're constantly trying to build a great team. And so we didn't want to bring on employees that wouldn't add to that. With the acquisitions, so I would say 75% of the employees have come over with us. None of these have been synergy plays. It's not like we intended to lose 25% of the employees, but just for whatever reason, manage turnover, people come and go and that's okay. But we obviously try to keep the A players. So that's just kind of the way it's worked out. So it's really buying both the accounts as well as the added technical resources of people. And you've talked before about wanting to eventually acquire unrelated businesses and just build a bit of a portfolio of sorts. How do you think about going after companies like that? And is that something you're going to do in the next two, three years? Or is that something more long term? And what would your role be as you go through that process? That would probably be something that's a little bit more long term. So tough to see the forest through the trees, so to speak. And right now, this these trees we're working through are it's operating Richmond Alarm and trying to build out that customer service platform or not build it out. It's already built out, but trying to continually enhance it and invest in it. But I think there's a lot of learnings here. So a lot of learnings that we've learned from Richmond Alarm in terms of capital structure and investing and training and growing the people, the employee population. So that's all been really good. We could definitely apply that to other businesses. There's no question. And I think it probably applies to businesses across a variety of the industry is not just a service business. If you look at what a software business is, as example, they've got a product, whether it's licensed maintenance or SaaS product, they've got a product that they're selling. They've got a sales engine that's pursuing these leads, trying to build a funnel of sales, putting that into the installation or a software case implementation backlog, and then delivering a great customer experience, no matter what it is, whether it's a technician visiting a home or whether it's a software platform. Okay, So I think the learnings here translate to a lot of other industries. So I'm excited to see where that can go. I don't know exactly what that means at this point. I can tell you my personal ambition is to be invested in, own, run, whatever it means to several businesses at any point in time. But right now, the focus is definitely on Richmond Alarm and let's call it somewhere between two and 10 years. That's a long enough time. It's, it's a short enough time horizon to where it's not tomorrow, but long enough to where it's a decade out to where we'd like to, we'd like to acquire more businesses. I think what we've done here is strong. It's a really good story. So we can take that to other places. So if you're going to hold on to this business then and potentially go run a new one, are you looking at grooming a successor for your role now? Or is that something that that's probably still in the future for you? Yeah, still a bit in the future, although we look at our succession plan every so often. And I can tell you with confidence that if I were to get hit by a bus, we'd be okay. It's not necessarily we need to groom a successor and we haven't started that process. So there's zero chance we could go acquire something else right now. We'll see what ends up pushing that envelope. But and at any point in time, if you can have a strong bench, that's obviously a good thing. So if something came up in the next couple of years, that's why I say two to 10 years, if something came up in the next couple of years, I have a very high degree of confidence that if my time were to back off of Richmond Alarm, right now, a lot of my time is focused on trying to understand our sales process, where we can generate leads, looking at capital structure and how we can acquire or invest in other things. If at any point in time, somebody were to take those elements off of me and Richmond Alarm, and we have people that are capable of doing that, then yeah, we could make that happen pretty quickly. 
What class would you teach in college if it could be about anything you wanted? Considering that almost, I'm not sure you could teach anything that helps somebody run a business. I think one of the glaring elements here running Richmond Alarm is communication. Communication is such a giant challenge for people. What to communicate, how to communicate, when to communicate, who to communicate with. I just think that so many problems can be solved if people were better at that. So in the spirit of helping people and trying to help them get to the next level, maybe something around communication that's pretty broad. From my schooling, I think from my MBA anyhow, the class I enjoyed the most was probably commercializing innovation. I was a TA for a professor who taught that. And that was about taking businesses from startup or concept really to launching the business. We did some cases later on in the class of when it was launched, how you raise additional capital, raise a series B, a series C, et cetera. So I really enjoyed that. That was very stimulating mentally. So I would probably teach that if it was an MBA setting. And if it was anything else, science is great. I'd blowing things up, doing lab tests, I think, with middle schoolers would be really cool. So I just think that would be a very entertaining job and, and fun. I, I probably wouldn't get too stressed about that. So not a direct answer, one specific course, but depending on what population I'm trying to help, I think those are a few of the things that interest me. Was that innovation class, was that something that help spur a little bit of your entrepreneurship mindset? Or is there something else that did it for you? Absolutely was. Combination of my work experience. When I was with Abbott, I worked in California in that product development role. That was where I was sort of bit by that entrepreneurial bug, so to speak. And then it was cultivated at commercializing innovation course. The thing that commercializing innovation course did for me was provide the confidence to understand how to break down a unit model and what unit economics look like and trying to perfect that through either in the initial stages through research and understanding what type of unit model you're building in terms of what product you're building, what the unit economics look like. And then once it's built and once the unit economics look good, how you can attract investors to fund that. So it gave me a ton of confidence behind the knowledge of what a unit model is, how to sort of tell a story behind it. And that was the idea behind taking a product from concept to launch and, and getting it funded. So it gave me a ton of confidence there. So it was sort of bitten by the entrepreneurial bug, but then it became real when I understood what unit economics were and, and how I said, yeah, I could do that myself. I could, in this case, go buy a business that's got good unit economics and, and get investors behind that and really grow it. That's awesome. There was this program at University of Portland I was a part of called Entrepreneurial Scholars. And it was it sounds very similar to the one you were describing. And a lot of the feedback from students was it gave me that confidence to go out and do something on my own and that I could create something that didn't exist before. And there was something really cool about that. It's it's neat to hear that that was the same for you. Yeah, it's very empowering. And that's, I think, what gives people that confidence to go take a risk. Yeah, absolutely. What's a belief you used to hold fairly strongly that you've changed your mind on over the years? When I was at Abbott, there was this belief that somebody's either right for the role or not. It's very cut and dry. Somebody would either succeed or fail. It was sort of black and white. I don't really hold on to that belief anymore. I mean, I think 
there's a certain coaching element that I like to apply to our management team. It's really cool to try to understand people's strengths and weaknesses and, and really play up their strengths. Now, it doesn't always work. I'm not naive to that. So there's an element of performance management that you do have to sort of just call it a day. And there's this excitement and just this energy around watching somebody grow and develop, realizing their strengths, pushing those strengths that that's really changed my perspective on that. It was very black and white back in the day. And it's probably because it was part of a corporate environment with these 10 things you had to be graded out on from a performance management standpoint. So that's definitely changed as I've grown with Richmond Alarm and with this management team. That's fantastic. What's the best business you've come across? I think as it relates to the company we're currently with, service delivery model, we talk a lot about Chick-fil-A only because from a customer standpoint, everything seems so flawless. And yet we'll drive past a Chick-fil-A around lunchtime and the line wraps around the building and there'll be another unnamed restaurant next to it with maybe two cars in the drive-thru. So I don't know about the best business, but I will say it's one that as I run Richmond Alarm, we have a ton of admiration for because they deliver this unbelievable service. I'm sure there is a ton of complicated elements behind the scenes and they never let the customers see it. Having run Richmond Alarm, I have a ton of appreciation for that. I've been in those lines before and there's one here in uh, Beaverton that has actually two driveways for the drive-through. There were folks out front who were taking orders on iPads and they had the menu there for you if you wanted to look at that. And and then you funnel into one and then each meal is dropped off and then the car drives away. It's so It was so quick and like you said, seamless and smooth and really, really impressive. I can see why you'd admire them. From what you just said, they've adequately invested in training, technology, processes, so that at the end of the day, the person that's taking your order, they're not worried about 45 things. They're worried about getting your name and smiling, right? And talking in a great tone to you. And so you, they really narrow it down to providing a great experience through eliminate, simplifying, I guess, these other elements of their business. It's really cool. It is really cool. Michelle and I are heading out to our mini honeymoon this weekend, and there's a new in and out that's in Salem. We went there one time, and I think she wants to go again this time, but there was Last time we were there, a huge, gigantic line that went into the road and they had cones in the middle divider, like middle lane that people would funnel into. And it looked like people were sitting there for hours. I don't even think a Chick-fil-A system can fix 60 cars trying to get into the same lane, but it's impressive when companies can really get that right. And is there something that you can identify that you pulled from Chick-fil-A within Richmond? Yeah. I mean, it's going to sound pretty... uh small relative to building a Chick-fil-A, but I went into a Chick-fil-A one time, had this experience where I ordered a breakfast. I was meeting with somebody and just wanted the entree. And then as soon as they rung me up, I said, oh, I'll have a coffee as well. You think about it. They could have canceled out the order. They could have re-rung up a coffee. They could have scanned the credit card again. At the end of the day, the customer just asked for a cup of coffee. Just get them a cup of coffee. 
So we use that term a lot here. Just get the customer a cup of coffee. It's not that hard. We don't care about the 22 cents that it costs to get the customer a cup of coffee, okay? At the end of the day, they're going to think it's really impressive that they ordered a coffee, you just went, you turned around, you filled a cup, and you gave it to them. So we've used that a lot, that example a lot, when it comes to things like change orders. So we'll go out, we'll visit a customer site. They had two doors of motion, and let's say they want a camera. Just get them a camera. In that case, we're going to charge them for the camera because it's not just a 22-cent cup of coffee. But have it on the technician's truck. We don't want to have a long, drawn-out paperwork process. We don't want to have them pay cash or check or, you know what, just we got a credit card on file. We'll run the credit card when it comes back in-house. Just get the customer the cup of coffee. So we've used that example specifically numerous times. That's fantastic. I've loved chatting with you today. I'll let you go here and get back to your day, but thank you for sharing your time with us. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on and congrats on the wedding and have a really good mini honeymoon. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Will do. All right. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Livebook Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn more about the Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.